I, um, I've known my wife for quite some time. We met in uh, high school. I was in high school. She was in junior high. Very risque, I know. She was uh, 14. I was 16. And, um, and uh, you know, 10 years later, eventually, we get married. So uh, it took some time. But on the kind of way to that, the journey to that, there was some preparation involved. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can be kind of methodical and, and uh, uh, thoughtful. So it took some time for me, but eventually I had this whole plan concocted, right, where I was going to surprise her and sweep her off her feet and be amazing. And uh, it didn't quite work out like I wanted because uh, on the weekend of the proposal, I'd realized that she was getting too close, right? I wanted to be a huge surprise. And she was getting too close because she's very sharp. And basically, every, Chris, every, every party she's ever thrown for me, or every party I've ever done for her, any surprise, she's always figured out, always. And so I figured that was going to happen, and I decided to be as subversive as possible, and I invited her, uh, well, her and I went to a friend's house down around the Sugarland area uh, to stay with them, an older couple that was mentoring us. So we stayed the night uh, in separate bedrooms, and she's over there, and I'm over here. And uh, we have this great time together with uh, dinner and the family and council. I mean, just great family. And, uh, and she thought, I'm pretty sure she thought that it was going to happen that night that I was going to ask her uh, because the relationship had been going that direction for quite some time. And uh, we had like a dating, non-dating relationship while she was in Asia for a year, and I was not, so that was fun. Uh, but during this whole time, we, we had a uh, a relationship building, and it, it built to the point where it was like, okay, it's, I, this is the break-even point. I have to ask or move on and do something else. And so head over for this weekend, and I could tell that she thought it was going to happen that night, and she was so excited about it, and it didn't happen. It was going to happen the next day. So we had this whole nice evening, and uh, I had planned to go to uh, Chinatown, which we spent a lot of time with, and then to Japanese Gardens later and uh, walk around, and so uh, it didn't happen. And for her, uh, she was so crushed that I could hear her crying on the other side of the wall that night, and, uh, and part of me was sad, but part of me was like, yes. <laughs> I did it. She doesn't know, right? And uh, I was happy because I had the end in view, and so the next day I took her out, and... Um, eventually proposed, and during the proposal, in my confidence, I thought, everything's fine. And by the time I had said what I needed to say and got down on one knee, I realized I have never been in a more vulnerable position in all of my life. I've put everything out there, and if she says no or I don't know, both of them are no, (laughs) then I was out. I'd, I'd done all this planning. I had actually had a restaurant full of people waiting for, for the uh, reception after this. Uh, so, I, would, I mean, things were on the line, right? If she said no, it was going to ruin my life. And uh, fortunately, she said yes, thankfully. Thank you, Andrea, and uh, for this sermon illustration. But um, that, for me, became a, a redefining moment in my life, and I don't think just mine, but in hers. Because for her, she had to come down to all the information, all the experience at one point in time to say, I'm going to make a decision, yes or no. And it redefined our lives. 
That's kind of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're starting in chapter 14, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up there and get into it. Um, But we're going to start with verse 1 and go to verse 11. We don't have that many verses this morning, but there's uh, a good story involved and a lot to look over. Up to this point in the book of Mark, Mark has been moving pretty quickly, and he's actually slowing down a lot. Uh, Over one-third of the book focuses on the last seven days of Jesus' life. Mark moves very quickly, but when it comes to Jesus' suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection, he will slow down and examine things in a snapshot sort of way. Mark, unlike all the other Gospels, is more like an action movie. He will provide scenes where we can see major points in Jesus' life full of movement and action, and this is just one more of those, but chapter 14, he will slow down and change a perspective on Jesus to where up to this point, Jesus has been mostly viewed as a prophet. He wears the garments of a prophet. He goes to tell everybody to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand, and now he changes to view Jesus in a different light, a different way. Instead of a prophet, now we see Jesus as a priest. And I don't think it's great to divide those so evenly all the time, but uh, at this point, Jesus will change his demeanor. Instead of being out in the midst of the people, always teaching, always preaching, now he will recline and he will sit and he will wait as he is, like Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, 7, a lamb led to the slaughter. So let's pick up in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. What we see here is there's a group of people, the religious leaders of the nation, that are highly opposed to Jesus. And this is what we start to see, is that there are There are polar opposites. There are people that hate Jesus, and there are people that love Jesus. But what we also will see this morning is Mark, he gives another category. Not just hate, not just love, but a deceitful category. And he does that towards the end. And so the main point for this morning is this, that allegiance to Jesus leaves no middle ground. Mark is very serious about this point. Allegiance to Jesus leaves no middle ground. So we see this with the religious leaders in Mark 14, 1 through 2, that they can't stand this man. And this is actually remarkable if you think about it. Here's a man of unknown origin from a remote place in the empire, a despicable place in the empire, actually. He's obscure, uneducated, poor, he's lower class, And he's getting the attention of the highest people in the nation. They hate him. They know who this man is. They may not like him, but they know who he is. And I think it's important for us as we look at this to see why. Why does this happen? One reason is that Jesus just, every time he interacts with these people, sparks fly. I mean, he never has a docile interaction with these people every time sparks fly. And, and uh, I won't go through all the scripture references for you, but I wanted to look, just give you a snapshot of what we see in Mark. How does Mark picture this relationship with Jesus and these people? 
Um, here's, here's at least some ways he does it. That he forgave a paralytic's sins in front of these people. And they say, only God can forgive sins. What are you doing? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. It was a taboo thing. They weren't supposed to do that. You don't go to a sinner's house. Good grief. He allowed his disciples to work on the Sabbath. Uh, they were not allowed to. Do, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, but Jesus allows his disciples. He gives them permission to do so. He healed on the Sabbath in the synagogue. So if that's not enough, just working, he actually, he works himself on the Sabbath that you're not supposed to work, and he does it in a synagogue around a lot of other people. And what kind of example are we setting here? He's turning the nation upside down. He healed on the Sabbath. He publicly implied that the scribes were controlled by Satan. One time they come to him, they say, oh, we know. By the time it gets down to Jerusalem, like there's this guy out in Galilee, and the, uh, the Jerusalem heads will come and say, oh, we know what's going on. He's from Satan. Discredit him. That's the way to take him out. Just discredit him. Jesus said, how... How can I be a worker of Satan if I'm tearing down his kingdom? You have to be the one. So he implies that they're actually working for Satan. He publicly called the leaders of the nation hypocrites. Not a way to make friends, for sure. He openly taught against current religious commandments. He refused to prove his authority to them. They would come to Jesus periodically and say, okay, we got to know, like, who gave you this authority? We don't know where you come from. We don't know what education you have, and you just start telling everybody what to do. Where do you get it? He said, I don't play that game, and he left. He wouldn't answer him. I love that about Jesus, by the way. He, ref he refused to prove his authority to them. He told them they misunderstood the law because of their hard hearts, the people that know the law the most. He shut down temple commerce and called them robbers, thousands of people around. He silenced them by exposing their fear of the people. More than anything, they were afraid of the people. He openly spoke parables against them to call, and called them murderers. He avoided Pharisees and the Herodians' trap on taxes. Who should we pay taxes to? God, what is God? Caesar, what is Caesar's? He told Sadducees that they don't know the power of God or the scriptures. He passed the scribes' greatest test on the law. He gave the scribes a test they couldn't answer. He publicly denounced and condemned the scribes, and he taught all, that all of their financial contributions were nothing. They meant nothing. This is not a way to make friends and influence people, Jesus. Uh, he's not great at that. He doesn't want to do that. He's opposed to the proud. But not only that, it's because he had real power. This is the reason they couldn't shut him up. And Mark will show this a number of ways, but that he... He overcomes temptation by the devil in the beginning. First thing in his ministry, takes out Satan. He forgives sin. He calms the storm. He walks on the sea. I don't know how that even works. The sea moves. I don't know how you, you do that. He healed a man with a demon. He healed the curse of a woman who was hemorrhaging. He brings back a girl from the dead. He fed 5,000 people with just a handful of food. And then 4,000, again, he tells the future to his disciples three times, I'm about to suffer, die, be betrayed, and rise. Three times he tells them the future. Jesus, he withered a fig tree with a few words. And he was wiser than all his opponents, despite all their degrees and all their pedigree. Jesus is somebody who has real power and 
They hate him for it. But not only that, we spill into verse 3, and we see this, that while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. This is a remarkable thing. Jesus, despite all this hate, despite all the subterfuge, despite all the deceit, all the, all the planning, all the trickery, all the assassination conversations, he's sitting next to Jerusalem. What are they going to do? He knows. He sits as, I think Mark puts forward to us, king. He's fully in control. He has no problem with what's going on. And Bethany was a normal place where Jesus would go, especially during the Passion Week. And he's sitting. He's just reclining. I think Mark gives us a snapshot of Jesus here, despite everything that's going on, to show how powerful he is. And as I was thinking about it, I don't know if I handle things that way, right? If uh, Think about the Christmas season that you just went through. Lots of movement, lots of noise. I don't do well with noise. Uh, lots, of, lots of activity, lots of spending money, lots of, lots of stuff going on. And for me, I can tell you, it's, it's always bittersweet, right? You kind of enjoy it, and there's a lot of family and stuff going on. But at the same time, you're like, I just wish it would stop. I wish I could sit down in a dark room with no sound whatsoever. And uh, Jesus, he doesn't have a problem. All this is going on, and he's sitting down, reclining like a king. Not only that, he's in the house of Simon the leper, which is an unclean house. But when Jesus comes to unclean things, he makes them clean. He is fully in control. And it is in this situation that we see Jesus is opposed. He's opposed to the proud. Allegiance to Jesus leaves no middle ground. He knows there are people out there that hate him, and he knows that there's actually even somebody in the room that hates him. And so not only is Jesus opposed to the proud, but as we keep reading, we see that he gives grace to the humble. So here's the situation. The religious leaders ask, how can we capture this man? How, we, how can we kill him by stealth? We don't want anyone to know what's really happening we want to do it quickly, and we don't want anybody to know about it. How can we do it? They can't access him. He's too smart. He's too protected. He's too powerful. So then Mark gives us a story about how it's going to happen. And he begins this way, that in verse 3, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have, been used, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And as we get into the situation, we have to ask, who is this? Jesus is sitting at dinner. This woman comes in and breaks open a bottle of oil, pours it over his head. Now, if we were to, to do this today, we would have different different uh, reactions, right? So let's say we're all, we, have a, we have a meal after church today in the cafeteria, and somebody comes up behind Pastor Casey with a bottle of 10W40 and, uh, and then starts just pouring it out all over his head. Uh, you would probably, I, I can think of a number of you that would probably at least have your gun pulled, if not already have the person on the floor before the bottle was emptied. 
So we have a contextual difference here, right? This is something that's outside of our normal way of life. Uh, but it really wasn't for the Bible. Uh, this is something that happens repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament. Um, it was normal to anoint somebody of uh, high stature at a festal celebration like this. This is the Passover, biggest feast of the whole year, the time when all the Jews would come. So it's not that odd, but at the same time, uh, it is odd. It's odd because of the extravagance involved. Uh, as, as Mark tells us, this is something that is extremely expensive. John will tell us that this woman is Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, and he has a different account of it in, uh, in John 12, if you want to read that sometime. But as it happens, she comes in, breaks the bottle, pours it over Jesus, and everyone is amazed. Amazed and angry. Angry because it seems like such a waste. You see, Mary knows something about Jesus. Even the disciples seem to be hard-hearted and not really to get that he is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Uh, Messiah just means anointed one. This is the person that God has set apart from everyone else to say, he will follow me and he will do what I command. He will lead the nation. He will lead my people. He will bring peace, shalom to the earth like I desire. And this happens all through the Old Testament. Anytime a king is put in place, put in office, uh, we would say, one of the key things that they have to do is they get anointed. Oil is poured over their head, down their body, down their beard. And even we see here with Jesus, as John tells us, Jesus's feet, he is completely covered in it. Why? Because Mary knows this man is not just a man. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God to bring reconciliation to man, the world, and God. He will make everything right. But not only that, uh, he owns her. And I think we can see this by the use of her gift. She uses one pound of pure nard. Now, uh, we, probably we don't have a lot of nard hanging around here, right? But um, I don't know, there are a lot of essential oil aficionados in the room, so you might have something in your purse. But uh, if you do, let me know afterward because I'm curious to how it smells. But uh, it was an expensive gift, 300 denarii. That's basically a year's salary. So think about, think about how much this cost this woman. She's not a woman of state. She doesn't have fame. She doesn't have resources. This is probably... Uh, one of two things. Uh, either it was a, a family heirloom that she would use for her dowry when she was married, passed down through the, uh, through the generations, or it was something that she would use for the day of her own death if she died a virgin, that somebody would use to honor her and commemorate her. And she, this is something that is close to her heart. Now, um, I, I did a little bit of looking around. I'm sure that everyone here has had some sort of expensive meal at some point, uh, but up in New York, there's a, a slice of pizza, pizza that costs $2,000. It has, uh, uh, I kind of want to try it, but kind of not. I don't know how I could live like that. But uh, it has gold, 24-karat uh, gold leaves on it. It has caviar. It has a lot on it. $2,000 a slice. And we consider that, I mean, extremely extravagant. It doesn't come close to this gift. 
doesn't come close to it. This woman poured out everything she had, not just uh, sentimentality, something that had been kept in the family, but she pours out her very future. This would be financial security for her. If for some reason things go horribly wrong, she could live off of this for a year and survive. But she takes it and pours it out. Pours it out on Jesus because she knows that Jesus is worth more than everything. Worth more than everything that she has or could ever have. And I think that there's good application for us that when we see this woman, I think Mark begs us to ask the question, are we as generous as her? Not just generous to other people. The disciples will bring up in a second. It could have been used for the poor. Like we could have done other things with this money or this resourcing, but Jesus says, no, it's for me. So for us, I wonder how sacrificial are we are when it comes to knowing Christ. Like how much do you put forward? How much do you let go in order to know him? Uh, and we have a number of different resources. Time is one, energy. So this is the beginning of the year, 2018. And I wonder how many people have thought about how to know Jesus more through the Bible this year. Bible reading plans are a fantastic thing to get done at the beginning of the year. Uh, not that you have to do the full Bible in a year, but like, do you think about these kind of things? When you think of Jesus, do you think, how can I get rid of other things? How can I honor him? How can I pursue him? Or helping the poor, like the disciples say, this is a way in Jesus' absence to show commitment to him or tithing to the church. There are so many different ways to show an extravagant love for Jesus that overcomes all things. Uh, there's a, a, one of my favorite uh, pastors, preachers. He says, the reason that we have money is to show that money is not valuable. That's the reason we have it. To show that money is not valuable, but God is. And certainly this woman understood that. So she's humble in doing this. She empties herself. She makes herself totally available to Jesus. And I can imagine that many of us would have objected if we were in the same seat as the disciples, that the expense was irrational. Irrational. Why would you give up your savings like that, your financial security? But Jesus responds in Mark 14, verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whoever the, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Notice, not only does Jesus tell the scoffers to stop, which are the disciples, Jesus' closest friends on earth. But he affirms that what she has done is beautiful in his eyes. He honors her in front of everyone. This would have been jarring for this company. Women are not treated like this typically in the culture to relegate the male guests and to elevate the female servant. This doesn't happen, but Jesus does it. Why? It's because she has done more than she knows. Now, I think it's impossible for us to tell exactly how much Mary knew, but I think that she, pr she probably knows more than the disciples at this point. She gets that something is about to happen that will take Jesus away from her, and she does not want that to happen. 
Jesus was about to take the most despicable shame possible in the world. To be crucified was to be the worst of all criminals. If you were crucified, everyone would know, besides the public humiliation and shame involved when people would see you naked on a cross being tortured, they would also know that that is, that is a type of person that you never want to associate yourself with. And Jesus does this for, for us. And she, she sees Jesus' heart and his sacrifice. And so she anoints him for his burial, he says. It's a way, a way of honoring him. And I can't help but wonder if as the oil was running down his head and his beard and his, his tunic, that he wasn't thinking of Psalm 23. That you, O oh Lord, anoint my head with oil. You provide a place for me to eat in the presence of my enemies. Verse 1 and 2, enemies all around. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, this woman is not simply being humble and giving up a lot, but she's ministering to Jesus. She's taking what she has, what she's been given, and giving it to him, and Jesus, I think, sees this, and he loves this woman. He sees her humility, and it encourages him, something the disciples don't do at all right before the cross, as it helps him think about God's own provision and care for his life. And for us, I, I was really, um, really touched this week. I'm, I'm not normally like a touchy-feely kind of guy, if you... Didn't know that. But um, when you look at this woman and you see the way that she's responding, it is amazing. And it helped me see God's care for us. You see, uh, as a believer, when you face adversity, God knows. He fully knows. And he cares. He's able to recognize with us in Christ. He cares for his own, and he will take care of them. The comforting truth that we see here with this woman is that you don't need money. You don't need intelligence. You don't need fame. You don't need ingenuity. You don't need pedigree. All that you need is to humble yourself before God, before this king, and live for him, and he will honor you. That's the amazing thing that's happening. Jesus is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How? The humble person the humble person honors Jesus. And in return, Jesus honors them. It's unpredictable. If any of the disciples knew this was the, the formula for getting honor, they would have done it already. But that's not how it works. Jesus is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And moving on in the next verses, we see the last that Jesus exposes the deceitful. You see, not only is this woman elevated, but she's elevated with fame to last the ages. Jesus does an incredible thing for her. He doesn't do with the other disciples, at least say to the other disciples, that he promises her because of what she's done and her ministry to him, he promises her fame. Whenever the, this gospel is told, I don't think that means that every time the gospel is told, obviously that she 
Her name has to be in it. But you are hearing about this woman 2,000 years later because of her humility and Jesus' honoring of her. This is something all the disciples wanted, right? They're always having arguments about who's the greatest, who's going to get the most attention. And there's one person in the room that wants this more than anyone else. And we see it in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, this was the pivotal moment. When Judas saw Jesus' extravagant love for this woman in relation to hers to him, he said, that's it. I'm out. I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take trusting this man who obviously is going to kill himself or let himself be killed. That's part of it. But not only that, he's not giving me what I want, the money. John 12 tells us uh, in this story that Judas was the one that said it could have been sold for 300 denarii, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he kept the money back. He had all the money, and he would help himself to it sometimes. You see, Judas was calculating, always calculating, always trying to figure out what's the best position for myself. And he is, as Mark puts forward to us, a deceitful person. He stumbled over the stumbling block, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, that for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Judas's problem is that he saw a glimpse of this crucified Christ, crucified Savior, and he said, not me. That's not going to get me the fame I want. That's not going to get me the money I want. And so he sold out, and he went in a different direction. I don't think this was a totally ambivalent decision. It's not just like, oh, Jesus is going to get me killed. Somebody else can give me money. I don't think it's merely as uninvolved as that. He's angry, I think, at this point with this woman being elevated above him. He's the one that spoke up the most about her wasting this resource. And Jesus says, no, you don't talk to her like that. She did something better than you've ever done. So Jesus Judas understood that Jesus was not going to, the one, going to be the one to make his dreams come true. Judas understood that if he followed this man, kept following him, he was going to lose everything. It was, like, it was as if Judas had his own flask of ointment and said, I'm not giving that up. Not worth it. So he goes to the religious leaders to turn Jesus in. You see, Judas is doing something here that that may be a little bit difficult on the surface for us to understand, but I think has profound impact. Judas tried to find a middle way. And I think there are some arguments that middle way is fantastic and it works well, but it does not work with Jesus. Jesus is opposed to the proud. On the one side, the religious leaders. On the other side, the humble person like Mary. And Judas said, maybe I can just float down the middle. Maybe I don't have to 
suffer the criticism of desiring all the things the Pharisees want, but maybe I don't have to actually experience the shame of being a disciple. Maybe I can just follow Jesus in name, but not in action. And just like the proposal illustration I gave you earlier, there will come a time when that's not feasible any longer. And it was for Judas. It took Judas about three years to get to this point to where finally the motives, motives of his heart were exposed and he said, not worth it, I'm bailing. You see, for us, it's the same. We cannot choose a third way. It's not an option. Jesus is king and that necessitates being on the side of people who, uh, that hate him and reject his authority or the people that love him and submit to his authority. And this is something that Jesus has already said in Mark 10, 44 and 45, whoever would be first among you, he has to be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That there is an aspect to being a Christian to where you have to be so willing to lay your life down that you cannot have it as yourself, for yourself. See, what Mark is telling us with the life of Judas is you cannot have morality the, the way that you want it in Jesus too. You can't sit on top of your own decisions and say right and wrong and say you believe in Jesus and you follow him. It doesn't work that way. You are led by a different Lord. You are not Lord of your life. Jesus is, and he calls the shots. Mark tells us that the believer must be willing to associate with the humble and recognize with them because that's what Jesus did. And this is not something that was going to be new to people in the first century. You see, Mark writes, to catch one of those bigger themes of his writing, the suffering servant of the Messiah, Mark writes around the gospel 50 to 65 AD, somewhere around there. That is shortly after the persecution of Nero broke out from Rome in the church. Mark writes not to a Jewish audience. He's the only gospel that writes to a Gentile audience. He writes from Rome to Romans who have become believers. Gentiles like you and me that have heard the name of Jesus and responded in faith. And he writes to them this story to say, you can't do it. If you are to believe in Jesus, you must associate with him publicly. And of course, the things that we would suffer as loss are not nearly as intense as they would suffer as loss. They would have their houses confiscated, all of their land seized. They would lose all their money. Most of the time, they would go to the arena to be killed by sport or animals. Or if it wasn't that, they would light up the roads, being on fire and crucified. You see, there are real costs to knowing this Jesus. And eventually, for every single one of us, there comes a time when you cannot say, I'll just take a middle way. I'll just kind of believe in Jesus. It doesn't happen. It will not work. Eventually, everyone is one of two kind of people. Either they accept Jesus as Lord or they reject him as Lord. That's Mark's message to us this morning. That allegiance to Jesus leaves no middle ground. You can't have it all the ways you want. You have to follow Christ, if you believe in him. And this is something that 
that some people have found far more powerful than I have or you have probably. Uh, there was an, a missionary to Ecuador years ago, Jim Elliott, if you haven't heard of him, and he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's one of those things you have to think about over and over again to make sense of. But this is a man who, who gave up his life, literally. He knew after hearing the gospel that people have not heard about him in certain places of the world. So he and four other buddies of his fly to Ecuador. And they fly over repeatedly until they get a view of the area. And then they eventually drop him in and some friends. And he goes to tell them about Jesus and gets speared to death on the shore. Why? Because in his passion, he saw, like Mary saw, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The only choice you have at the end of the day is like Jesus has already said, forfeit your soul with money or give it to him. Jim Elliott, Mary, so many other people have known you cannot have it both ways. You have to embrace him as Lord or reject him as Lord. Now, as we end, a couple words on some groups here. Judas certainly represents to us somebody who was deceitful. He was disingenuous. He wasn't really a part of Jesus' disciples, even though he was numbered among the 12. And there may be some of you like that this morning. That to now, this morning, may come the point for you where you fully acknowledge, you know, I've been a part of this whole Christian thing for years, gone to church, know Bible verses, maybe even taught some Bible lessons, serve every morning in road crew, but I don't really believe it. For you, hear the warning from Judas. You cannot have it both ways. Eventually, well, there will come a time when you have to decide who this Jesus is in relation to yourself. And not only that, if you're somebody who sits there and says, I just don't know, there's grace. You see, Judas is not the only person who betrayed Jesus. Just a couple chapters later, we see that Peter betrays Jesus. He denies him publicly three times. So if you read this and you hear it and you're overwhelmed and you say, well, how in the world can I be this way? I'm not perfect. Jesus doesn't go after the perfect. He goes after the imperfect. He is a servant for you to bring you to God. Judas is the person that says, I see what Christ is going to do. Or for us, see what he has done and says, I'll find my own way. But for Peter, he's, he betrays Jesus and he repents. You see, the mark of being a Christian is not being perfect. The mark of being a Christian is being repentant. That when you see Jesus, you love him and you want to do whatever you can to be with him. As Peter has said elsewhere, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And would we say the same? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to oppose the proud and to give grace to the humble and to show us that there is no choice outside of the choices that you have given. 
that you have created us, that you have sustained us, you have given us life and hope only in your Son. And God, I ask that you would encourage those of us who are faint-hearted this morning to see this and despair of their own, their own ability and willingness to follow you. They don't even see the desire, the capacity to follow you sometimes. Lord, would you encourage us that you provide the means, you provide the capacity, you provide the love, that you give grace to the humble. God, if we would just come to you, lay ourselves down and say, whatever it is that you want, King Jesus, you are Lord. And God, for those of us that are hard-hearted or have things in our hands that cannot be pried out by normal circumstances in life, I ask that you would give grace to light up eyes to see how beautiful your son is and how worthy he is to to be extravagant to him, to waste everything that we have in view of him. Father, I ask all this in your son's name. Amen.